Hello everyone, my name is Swannima Bhattacharya. I'm from New Delhi, India, and I'm currently servicing as the Chief Product Officer of Gayatri for Women's Health in India. Femtech for me is basically a disruptive force. It is a force that is mending broken healthcare systems in India. It is disrupting the way technology has serviced women. It is disrupting the way healthcare and science have blindsided women. And it is also disrupting the way women are conducting themselves in business. So Femtech for me, in a nutshell, is hope for better times to come. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interview Swarnima Bhattacharya, Chief Product Officer at Gaitri. Gaitri is a venture-backed virtual women's health clinic in India, providing integrated care from menstruation to menopause. They are trusted women's health for gynecology, therapy, nutrition, fitness, and more. As well as being Gaitri's chief product officer, Swarnima is an AstraZeneca young health scholar working on the digital future of women's health. She created the award-winning AR-based toy Uterus, providing interactive storytelling for comprehensive sexuality education in schools. She also previously founded TIA, an advocacy platform to map Indian women's journeys towards correct diagnosis of chronic illnesses. In this interview, we discuss the history and current state of women's health in India, government thinking around women's health in the country, and the flourishing Indian femtech industry. This is a great opportunity to learn more about the unique challenges facing Indian women. Learn more about Gaitri at Gaitri.com. That's G-Y-T-R-E-E.com. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Swarnima. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. I think you may be our first India, India-based India guest, I think. Really? Is that so? Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I think you've had 200 episodes by now. I know. It's overdue. It's overdue. I actually, um, <laughs> it makes me very happy when I do find a topic we haven't covered yet because it lets me know that our podcast can live on forever. There's an endless number of topics to cover in women's health yeah, and women's yeah. health in India is certainly one of them. What time Absolutely. is it there? It's actually pretty late at night. It's 9.15 p.m. Oh. Uh, you know, early startup days, uh, we often don't look at the clock just to maintain our own sanity a little bit. So it doesn't make much of to me. Cool. Well, then I'm glad that you're staying up late with us here uh, with Megan in London and me and Raleigh. Uh, let's kick off the interview with learning a little bit more about yourself before we dive into, you know, the femtech industry in India. Tell us a little bit more about your background, where you're from and how you got into women's health. So um, I am basically, I identify most as a public health professional uh, because that was my background for about, uh, you know, 10 years before I started my journey with uh, my current startup, Gayatri. 
Uh, I work with the UN and WHO, uh, and my focus has always been women's health. Um, so, and of course, a little bit you know of work with intergovernmental agencies, female entrepreneurship, etc. Um, I grew up in a you know in a smaller town in India uh, called Lucknow. It's a beautiful place, uh, beautiful culture, uh, steeped in history. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what I realized at a very young age was that um, you know when it came to women's well-being and women's empowerment or gender emancipation in any way, uh, my hometown was lagging behind. Um, and when I came on to a bigger city in India, I was um, upset to see that not much was different, you know. And what I was looking at is that whether it is um, you know, women at the workplace or women accessing healthcare or, you know, women's maternity, mental health, all of that, there was women's health at the center of everything. And women's health was not just about the clinical aspects. It was not just about women's diseases or conditions. It was really how the quality of life uh, was being determined by the socio-cultural position, the socio-cultural and economic position that women held. So this was, um, I mean, I was, of course, not as articulate uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, it was something, the language uh, is something that I acquired over the years um, of, you know, how to really define the problem. But I saw this all around and uh, uh, it was just astonishing for me, I think, when uh, uh, I had some personal health experiences of my own. Uh, I heard way too many stories around me um, of misdiagnosis, delayed diagnosis. And it was just astonishing to me that uh, something like a PCOS or an endometriosis or a fibromyalgia, which is so commonplace, um, it takes an average of seven years for it to get diagnosed. And women change up to three to four gynecologists before they find um, the right diagnosis. I think that is what basically firmly put me in the path to working more towards women's health. That is absolutely incredible. When you were at the uh, UN and, um, uh, yeah, the UN, were, was there women's health issues that you got involved in? Yeah, so basically, you know, my work was sort of intersectional. In many ways, I was basically focusing on gender and, you know, economic empowerment, but obviously health was an extremely important underpinning. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, my sensibility and the value system that we're driving even at Guide 3, uh, which is that women's health is determined by more than just what's happening with a pill or a medication or within the clinic. I think a lot of that was shaped, uh, you know, during that time. So yeah. uh, my theory of change, so to speak, uh, when it comes to women's health uh, has a lot to do with how do we improve both in clinic and, you know, extrinsic experiences as well. Wow. Well, tell us about Gaitri. What is it? When did it start? What does it do? Yeah, so Gayatri is uh, basically, uh, you know, it's a complete online clinic for women's health. So we are virtual, we are pan-India, uh, we are servicing, you know, every kind of service that, you know, that determines real healthcare outcomes for women. So whether it's gynecology, nutrition, emotional health, even skin and hair, lifestyle, sleep, we service all of that. Now, uh, and, you know, we basically call ourselves, you know, women's health partners from menstruation to menopause. Now, there's a reason behind that. You know, we, thought, we put a lot of thought and we are always asked, um, but what is your focus area? You seem to be doing everything. But, you know, the thing is that this is a bit of a, uh, you know, miss, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding or misappropriation of how to solve women's health. And um, while we completely understand the market necessities of having a focus area, what we say is that we focus on women's healthcare journey. 
Now, whether it requires gynecology, nutrition, or emotional health services, we provide all of that in a step-by-step guided, personalized manner. That's basically what Gayatri does. It's been founded by Shelly Chopra, uh, who has the, uh, you know, she's famous for having run She the People, which is uh, Asia's largest uh, women's health, uh, you know, women's media platform. And I have joined in as uh, uh, the chief product officer. And yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey, <laughs> very challenging uh, and very, very fascinating so far. How long has Gayatri been around? Um, so the story of Gayatri is basically in two stages. Uh, we have been economically, like our economic activity has started about, you know, five to six months uh, ago. So very, very young day. And we closed our major fundraising round, uh, backed by some of the, you know, industry stalwarts in the country. Uh, you know, Dr. Kiran Mazumdar, who is the founder of Biopon, you know, one of India's, one of the pharmaceutical giants of India and uh, uh, quite a quite an industry stalwart. But the story of Gayatri actually began way back, uh, about a year before that, when uh, she, the people which has about you know, millions and millions of 20 million, to be precise, you know, community members, and they were basically consuming tons of healthcare content uh, on that media platform. And that basically gave the team an idea that, you know, what next, uh, now that we spread awareness, how do we plug in the gap? Mm. So um, a chatbot was basically created, which was called Dr. Didi. Didi is basically uh, the Hindi term and Indian term for elder sister. So to, the idea to make the doctor a relatable, approachable, accessible figure. So a chatbot by the name of Dr. Didi was launched and which has had, you know, more than 10 million conversations mm. in various vernacular languages in India. Uh, and that was basically the start of Gayatri, um, that you know, this is a healthcare need that is required and we need to now bridge the gap, uh, you know, post-conversation, moving into consultations and things. Yes. And so does Gayatri offer telehealth services with physicians? Yes. 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 So we're a complete online clinic. Uh, teleconsultation is one of those. And uh, the other thing, which is something that we are very excited about and very focused on is basically we are creating uh, a complete women's wellness subscription and and, uh, for the lack of a better word but what it actually is uh, is a long-term care plan for women with unlimited access to certain experts like gynecs and nutritionists and the idea basically is twofold that one is that you know women's you know health needs are increasing but on the other hand what we're also seeing is that when we're saying that okay this is a diet plan for you, or that's an exercise plan for you. Many a time, the circumstances around that individual does not allow you to, uh, you know, focus on those things, focus on those corrective measures or remedial measures for your health. So the annual plan is basically a personalized journey where we focus on the clinical, but we also help you navigate the circumstances around you so that your health journey is not punctuated by other needs that women need to, you know, tend to from time to time. Yes. It sounds a whole lot like Maven Clinic in the United States. Do you often hear that similarity called out? You know, um, the thing is that, you know, um, you know, precursors like Maven, TR, they, there's a lot that we are borrowing from there, mm-hmm. but it's not, uh, you know, an exact sort of, you know, there, there are overlaps, obviously, but it's not entirely like that because Maven has now stepped into family health and, you know, all of that. Tia does a brilliant model between virtual 
as well as offline so we are not there uh, you know and we do not we are not looking at family health entirely we are focused on women's health like the individual like really placing the individual at the center and the other circumstances are something that that we help them navigate yeah. so that's well it's not a bad thing to be compared to a billion dollar company <laughs> right? Like the Indian version of the US billion dollar company. So um, I think that's fantastic. And I think what we're going to talk about next is actually um, why Maven Clinic couldn't just jump into India, right? Like, and the reason why your advice for women in Southeast Asia would be more specific to that culture. So let's dive into Femtech in India um, and tie it back into the Guy Trees uh, strategy. Tell us how many women live in India and what's the history of women's health in India? So uh, the female population in, in India, as per the 2022 records, is 685 million. Wow. So you know, that's a very large number and it's the female population is growing at an average annual rate of 1.79%. Um, however, you know, while that sounds like a massive number and people often think that, oh, that's that automatically means that it's a large market. Uh, that's not necessarily true because, uh, you know, based on, you know, social media data and, you know, other you know, interests that we have online, there are about 45 million educated adult females who uh, identify as health conscious or who interact with, you know, health-related services, products, etc. Out of which only 24 million women uh, live in tier one cities and metro cities which correlates sort of with, you know, payability and payment capacity. So that's 24 million out of the like 650 million that you just cited. Yes, that's right. That's right. And um, so basically the femtech market in India is therefore a difficult one to crack because of the layers of female experiences that are there. It's not heterogeneous. It's, It's very heterogeneous. It's not homogeneous at all. Uh, not that it is anywhere in the world, but in India, it's even more because of the economic striations are much more complex. You know, so when we're looking at, uh, say, tier one cities, the behaviorism, the, uh, you know, acceptance of certain, you know, um, models of womanhood, if I may say so, uh, then, you know, um, the independence, mobility, all of these, all of these are factors um, that, you know, enhance, uh, you know, women's ability to, seek health solutions to articulate their problem statements and also to pay for those solutions, right? But as we, uh, you know, go into the interiors of the country, that landscape changes very dramatically, right? So now coming to the history, um, actually, uh, so in the history, I'll just give a little bit of context. You see, India is basically a middle-income country as defined by the United Nations. So that defines almost everything. So that means that, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, like our socioeconomic conditions, our development indices, our infrastructure, mobility, urban, uh, you know, urban infrastructure, all of these, um, gender is something that is, that has been a bit on as an afterthought, you know, gender inclusion. So that obviously has had a huge impact on health because we know that healthcare is uh, determined by social, cultural, and economic factors. Now coming to um, the history specifically, we've had a history of very high maternal mortality rates. We've had a history of very uh, high cases of breast cancer and cervical cancer and related mortality. We've had a high history of female infanticide, 
uh, sex selective abortion. These are the things that have been there fed into it culturally. So when our lawmakers and policymakers were really thinking about the transformation of women's health, it was something that required sweeping changes. Uh, you know, so we have seen, if I may say so, you know, a lot of people might not agree, but as somebody who's been in, you know, public health policy for a while, our policy has always been very forward thinking. So in India, abortion was legalized in the 1970s. And we oh have- my God. <laughs> in America, we are currently fighting over the abortion pill. It's insane. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> abortion was legalized way back in the 1970s and sex selective abortion is over obviously banned and you know therefore there are some you know restrictions there and we're only making more and more strides then in 1992 the Indian government set up the National Commission for Women which was basically mandated to look at all pillars of women's health and well-being uh, whether it's domestic violence economic empowerment and they and of course health then there was another layer uh, in 2005 uh, we basically enacted the National Rural Health Mission uh, and the focus was infant and maternal mortality. And we have made, again, you know, huge strides in maternal mortality uh, since then. Um, the numbers are still not, you know, something to, you know, take home. But, uh, you know, there has been drastic improvement in the way, you know, things are going. So the history is uh, uh, where I look at it in two ways. You know, what is what is steeped in culture? But what is the, you know, thought process behind the law and the policy that is being made. And there I would say that it's been very forward-looking, at least in the spirit and letter. Uh, yeah. The execution is different. <laughs> That's a different story. Yeah. Would you say that the um, consumers in the major cities of India are kind of similar to the consumers in the United States? And then it's when you get out of those cities that it turns into a totally different beast? Or even the major cities in India, they have their own, like... Um, complexities that would require an India-specific company to address? So the thing is that, um, it, yes and no. In the major cities, there are a lot of overlaps with, you know, some behavior patterns that we see with a typical U.S. consumer, which is, you know, paying capacity, uh, you know, the need to sort of explore health products, engaging with, you know, digital wellness. Digital health engagement is obviously much more in, uh, you know, the, the tier one cities, etc. However, yes, I do think that it's difficult to have an exact replication of models that are working in the U.S., Again, for a variety of reasons, one of the biggest things being that um, the U.S. market is very insurance driven. That is not the case with the Indian market. You know, in Indian, uh, in India, you know, the insurance and, you know, enterprise and, the you know, direct consumer, they all work, you know, in a, in a different way. So that's a huge, uh, you know, change in itself in terms of how do you monetize? Mm -hmm. you know, how does healthcare get paid for in India? Who pays for it? It's actually a mixture of both. We've got a very robust, you know, government health system, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, government hospitals provide healthcare services at an extremely subsidized rates. Uh, in the city where I am, uh, Delhi, which is the capital uh, of the country, we also have these things called Mohalla clinics, which Mohalla is basically neighborhood, which basically means that, you know, there are small clinics, uh, holistic clinics on ground in, you know, underserved suburban spaces, so that, uh, you know, what is visible, you go there. You know, what is visible is accessible. Mm -hmm. So to, the idea of, 
of visibilizing the healthcare system that is it now the second is of course there is a very robust private uh, healthcare system as well because um, i mean there is a huge 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 chunk of india's population that is willing to pay premium and is paying premium for healthcare so we do have the private sector as well a lot of it is covered by workplace insurance uh, but that only extends to a certain strata of society and not entirely yeah in the united states we have um gynecology deserts where over 50% of our counties do not even have a gynecologist or obstetrician in india are there um women's health deserts actually no the you know what happens is that again it's a bit you know different so number one is that the uh, density of you know doctor to patient ratio is actually getting much better it's improving it's still very given the population you know it's still very sparse but it's increasing right uh, now what happens is that because of the last mile outreach and the challenges that the indian landscape you know uh, mentally and also physically and geographically presents we have this thing called asha workers so these are accredited social health workers you know so what they are asha is again an indian term which basically means hope so these are women who are you know from local communities that are trained in you know uh, just medical awareness right and they are given devices to you know track health and things like that so they use models like storytelling like community building or uh, you know door to door awareness to basically bridge the gap between a medical center and you know the end user there's another thing that uh, that uh, happens that that's very common in india especially in the rural areas is you know uh, mobile vans for testing for screening uh, you know for ultrasound for just looking at uh, you know like basically monitoring of you know a pregnant woman's pregnancy journey so these things have also increased quite a bit so the concept of you know uh, the doctor desert that agree, that exists in the us it is not again uh, you know exactly the same yeah. in india well so that's one of our unique challenges can you tell us about some of the unique challenges that women face in india maybe thing like taboos business models entrepreneurial ecosystem Yeah I mean um you know healthcare in india you know the thing is that when we're talking about women's health there are two aspects right the one is what's the healthcare system like and the second is what is the women's position and women's ecosystem and what is happening in women's health is obviously a result of both now healthcare in india as it is the case with a lot of you know spaces in the global south is you know a mixture of western medicine in clinic experience but also a lot of um, you know indigenous and uh, you know uh, ancient wisdom in ancient culture right um then in terms of women's uh, you know health we see that a lot of the services are determined by okay uh, you know fertility you know maternity etc so women's health as we are seeing right now is it in the last i would say decade it's transformed quite a bit you know where younger women who are working the more there is financial independence the more women are seeking better in every aspect of life you know the digital engagement of women has been transformative in the last uh, decade where more women are you know they are working as in in employed in in, in uh, you know working as in getting paid for work 
Number two, they are transacting online. So that has led to them asking more questions about, you know, healthcare, better health, talking about, you know, what should a gynecologist sound like? What should in-clinic experiences be? Forming communities, breastfeeding groups, maternity support groups, mental health groups. So all this community-driven healthcare is something that, you know, we saw at the grassroots, but then we saw it replicated in the digital spaces as well. And that has paved the way for digital clinics like ours. So we owe a lot to women's communities, uh, you know, that existed in the last five years, which became, which really pushed the envelope uh, in terms of, you know, what is being spoken about, what are the key areas of, you know, uh, you know, conversation. Uh, and that's where health clinics like uh, sort of, you know, the femtech industry sort of grew out of there. That's how I see uh, yeah. the movement. Right. In your- how was health literacy of women's health in India prior to digitalization? being able to ask chatbots questions or read blogs? How do you think the health literacy was? You know, the thing is that um, when we talk about health literacy, uh, I'm going to turn that into a little bit more holistic in the way. In, so women spoke about personal advancement, right? Which basically meant um, contesting body shame, fat shaming, uh, mental health, emotional wellness, talking about intimate partner violence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <clears throat> These conversations became very prevalent, especially in the urban spaces, in the more uh, you know emancipated spaces. And an effort was made to sort of let that percolate. You know. uh, and digital, the digital spaces really made a huge difference to that. So not just Facebook and Instagram, but also TikTok, and you know spaces where you know there was a lot of self-expression that even now is happening, it's free of cost. Anybody can get over there. Um, you know, we have a lot of people from the, you know, economically uh, weaker sections of society who are doing, you know, tons of stuff on TikTok and things. Now, the whole health literacy is actually attached to that, you know. So when women started talking, it became evident in various women's communities and media that healthcare-related questions, related to body, related to sexual health, mental health, this was a huge conversation. So yes, that led to a boom in uh, you know consuming content on healthcare and asking questions on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this community-based education system that has you know manifested, whether you know it's the right way or not, what do you think about how do we involve men in these conversations? Because that digital conversation is usually happening within a women's group, right? And then I I always see like this this uh, knowledge gap between the men and the women and then with and without the men involved in women's health we can't be as successful as we need to be and so um i know this wasn't a, a prepared question but just uh asking your advice what do you how do you think we can get men involved in the question and honestly maybe you can add in there how do the men in india view women's health are they engaged is it you know tell us about that it's a very important question and i actually have two viewpoints on this. One is that I still believe at this point of time, as somebody who's been in public health, who's now in the startup ecosystem, all of that, I do believe that there is a lot of merit and power in spaces that are exclusively for women or or people who identify as women. I think a lot of conversations, you know, a lot of people like to say this, that, oh, because in India, advancement has not happened. And therefore, I feel this is the world you know, spaces that are considered safe, 
you know, for self-expression, for self-discovery, for nothing but even listening. Not everyone in these groups is always talking. But you know, listening, reflecting, that alone helps a lot. I do believe that those spaces are But parallelly, absolutely, undoubtedly, men have to be involved in this. Um, and we look at it in this way, that, you know, think of it in this way. The data, you know, if I share a bit of, you know, a few data points. So India's female participation in the workforce has dropped drastically. It was already very low. It was 26%, which is lower than most of the, uh, you know, spaces uh, in South Asia. After COVID, it dropped to 19%, right? Now, one of the surveys, very important surveys said that 60% of women who dropped out of the workforce cite healthcare to be one of the biggest reasons. By healthcare, what do we mean? It's not that they are unwell. It's more like that, you know, there are challenges around maternity, childcare, fertility challenges, who takes a step back, who continues to go to work, etc. Then more than 90% of women in the same survey have said that, you know, they have faced a lot of challenge and stigma, uh, you know, while choosing between professional and personal responsibilities. Same group of people, working women, have said that 66% of them feel that when a woman has something like an endometriosis or a PCOS, she's considered uh, a bit unfit or unsuitable for marriage. You know, so these are the intersections, uh, you know, that exist, right? So therefore, men's involvement is very important. And why I think it's not just about men being part of the conversation or men being part of the solution, it's simply because when we're talking about progress, Progress does not mean okay, the men of India have progressed or the women of the US have progressed or something or the other. It's a nation or a community that is advancing and that is impossible without women being part of the economy. How will they be part of the economy if they are not empowered when it comes to their reproductive, sexual health and physical health rights? So that's how I feel that this conversation needs to be framed in terms of... Um, you know, some gender agnostic indices, which is, you know, ultimate progress of a community or a nation. And uh, for that, you know, both men and women have to obviously be involved. Wow. Love your insight there. And I, I totally agree. Um, can you tell us a little bit about specifically the femtech industry and the innovation in India? I always, you know, I get asked about femtech around the world and I always mention like femtech in India is like its own beast. It's its own ecosystem. It's its own products, products that are very specific for that country and that culture that may not, you know, be able to be exported into other economies. But honestly, their market is so big, they're probably fine just being in India. So I see all this like movement happening. Can you kind of tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, what, what it's like on the ground there in that country in terms of women's health innovation? So uh, there are, again, various aspects to this. Number one is the, the, in, in the short answer is that uh, I think finally after COVID and with the you know, accelerated adoption of digital health, women's health and femtech is definitely seeing a lot more interest, a lot more faith a lot more backers economically than it was before. A lot of companies have existed in the women's health space even before this in the last five years, six years, but they had a huge challenge in front of them, which is that when women are articulating their core challenges, health has always been on the backseat, mm. right? People are talking about mobility, access to work, 
you know, domestic violence in urban spaces, intimate partner violence, um, you know, property rights, etc., etc. Healthcare has been a little bit on the backseat. Although this was always a prevalent need, there has always been a latent pull, but this was not something that women have been articulating in a very, uh, you know, in a way where, uh, you know, they have not always considered it an investable opportunity themselves. That has changed tremendously, not to say it was never there, but it has changed tremendously post-COVID, right? So that has led to a boom in the femtech industry. Now, the femtech industry in India is also of two, three kinds, right? One is that is digital health, like we are. We are basically an online clinic. We have tons of offline partnerships because at the end of the day, that's how, I mean, we believe that, you know, without that, it's very difficult to advance women's healthcare because they will go to a clinic or a hospital from, for something or the other. How do we transform that space and that experience as well? Um, but there is also, you know, um, a lot of innovation that's happening in last mile outreach in the more economically underserved, uh, you know, regions. So there is a startup called Niramai, which is about, uh, uh, you know, breast cancer screening. There was one startup called Care Mother, which was basically looking at, uh, you know, uh, maternal health, uh, you know, uh, delivery and analytics at the last mile. So these were not, uh, you know, uh, that were, these were not for, I mean, Care Mother was not for the urban space, for example. We are primarily urban, tier one and tier two, you know, guide three. So there are, then there are some which are, uh, you know, more community oriented that, you know, their core offering is that it's not a service, but it's more a community because that alone is a monetizable opportunity for a lot of people. So these things have, uh, they've always existed, but there has been an acceleration in the last three years in terms of the variety that we are seeing and also the investment that has uh, come to the space. Is there investment coming from the Indian government? Is there investment coming from Indian angels? And what about VC? All three. Uh, So the Indian government, you know, um, so so in India, you know, what happens is that the government hospitals and, you know, some government services are subsidized. Uh, That has always been the case. So, uh, and this is not just for healthcare. This is also for things like, um, you know, rations and things like that, you know. Uh, vaccination being free of cost, etc. You know all those things. So um, in India, the public health system has had quite a few wins in the past. You know, the HIV/AIDS movement, the polio movement. There have been quite a few wins, right? So um, the government funding, uh, as much as possible, has been there. Even though, to be honest, I mean, it's I mean, um, healthcare is only one point seven nine percent of our overall GDP, which is miserable, by the way. Um, it's lower than almost every other Asian country, but it's on the mend, you know, in India, there are no easy answers when it comes to healthcare. The funding is also happening from angels and VCs that has definitely increased. Uh, marquee uh, investors, you know, stalwart industry leaders, uh, you know, they are all stepping into women's health in a big way. And because, you know, uh, the need is there, the market is large, the need is there. But how do we educate the end consumer and emancipate them to? Think of their personal health as an investable uh, space. You know, that is, I think, the challenge that is there. And there are a lot of sociocultural factors attached to it, which I think ties back to your earlier question that why is it, why is the Indian femtech market an ecosystem of its own? It's basically because of the culture being very, very different. 
Yeah. You know what I heard you said before, and then also in this answer was that women didn't even consider their health as something that they could have something better about, right? Like it was on our list of concerns, but it wasn't something we inherently thought was possible to be improved. And I think that that um, we've been gaslighted into uh, you know, being told that pain is normal, you know, I'm being uncomfortable is normal, being inconvenienced is normal. And then the COVID happened and it was like care delivery, accessibility, affordability. And women were like, what? I deserve some of that in my healthcare when it's just for me. Right. So I think that, um, COVID was horrible and it definitely provided, uh, moved the veil from a lot of people's mm -hmm. eyes in terms of the possibility for healthcare. Yeah. Um, I have two last questions for you. Um, the first one is what area in women's health and wellness, specifically in India, I'd like to ask, what area of Indian women's health and wellness that do you think still needs innovating? Very, very simple answer, autoimmune diseases. And autoimmune diseases. Awesome. I think uh, for various reasons. You know, now the thing is that, um, again, you know, when we're talking to the end consumer, you know, see, the, what you said, right, that culturally there is such a such an impetus to devalue the idea of pain, you know. Mm -hmm. And somehow what one is seeing, you know, when we're speaking with, you know, so many women on a daily basis, that the idea of acknowledging that I'm unwell, it's a bit, you know, one feels a bit hesitant to do that. Yeah, yeah, these things go on. This is life, you know. Somehow what has happened is that there is there is a, a hesitation to say, you know what, I'm in pain, fix this, you know. Somehow a lot of uh, people are still of the view that empowerment maybe lies in saying that, no, the pain does not exist, you know. And there people are very vulnerable and honest about it they're like you know if i say that i will take therapy right now uh you know then the person I, this was a person i spoke to just this morning you know she's 57 years old uh you know extremely well regarded you know corporate leader she said you know i feel that if i take therapy then i will be proving 20 years of men you know telling me that oh you you're not fit for this. You can't get your shit together. I'm going to be proving them right. And that kept me from accessing mental wow. health services. Yeah. You know, and now I'm coming into my own, uh, you know, my body is changing and I'm questioning all of that. So this is a bit of a journey, you know, when there are women who are coming from, see, the generation previous to us, there was not a lot of financial, uh, you know, independence. That itself is a bit new. Mm. And then there's autonomy related to healthcare. So it's a negotiation that is happening in stages. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a cultural thing. So it's a negotiation that, that's happening in stages, mobility, economic empowerment, all of these things are happening and healthcare is rolling with it, right? So therefore, something like an autoimmune disorder, which is already so poorly understood the world over, um, is obviously underserved in a country like India. And mental health goes without saying is suffering irrespective of uh, gender and sex. Yeah, because I mean, if we can't accept that people are in physical pain, the idea yeah. of them being in emotional or mental pain is even more quote unquote abstract to like get yeah, behind. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then our last question is what do you think the femtech industry in India needs the most right now in order to be successful? I think uh, it really needs innovation in distribution channels. Ooh, you know? tell me more about that. So basically, you know, I think when a startup is formulating that, which is the audience that we are talking to? It's it's actually a more difficult question 
to answer. This is a peop- a lot of people think that it's a simple one. It's actually not a simple. Pharma, literally, our our company consults like top ten pharma companies, like the literal leaders of healthcare. And the things that they say, I'm like, that is not your consumer. Like, what? <laughs> you think that's who's buying this? Is it's not like the idea of like even the biggest brands in the world not knowing yeah. how to speak to women or what women want? It's insane. So uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So I think speaking to your consumer, I think, and knowing what you, who your consumer is, and then really seeing where is that consumer sitting now, you know. A lot of people, uh, you know, make this mistake that okay, if a person is interested in healthcare, goes to gyms, reads wellness blogs, they are my consumer. You know what? Maybe not. You know, maybe wow. that. Person, honestly speaking, you know, because there are some people who, you know, and I consider myself to be one of those, by the way, who've had a bit of a health history, and we were so frustrated with not having the right answers. We've now figured ourselves out. You know. But there are women who are, um, and so this is where the you know the majority lies. You know they are sort of going to certain. They are interacting with certain brands which are forward-looking, say sustainable brands. They are uh, you know talking about um, urban infrastructure. They are talking about mental health. They are uh, you know going to brands which are um, you know more environmentally conscious. They are talking about climate change. Maybe that's where your where your audience is. Maybe they are the ones that are. Asking the right questions, they are not necessarily the ones that are interested in healthcare only. So I think our definition of our audience needs to be smarter. I think mm. and for where they are, you know, the, 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 the spaces that they occupy, that also needs a bit of a revamp. I think that innovation has to happen. And obviously, the second thing, I mean, I almost, I mean, I don't want to say it because it's such a cliche, but you know, uh, we could do with a less. Lesser amount of investor skepticism, I would say. Uh, you know, more investors invested in the long term um, because it's not a problem that can be solved right away. And if somebody is claiming to do that, something is wrong. Uh, so I think these are the two big changes uh, uh, that that I think are important. I love that. And, you know, we have so many guests that come on. And in fact, I think we actually even quantified it once. It was like over 75% of our guests when asked, what does the femtech industry need? They said funding. But I love what you said, which is it's inherently you said funding, but you said decreased skepticism from investors. And I love that because investors are meant to invest in risky stuff. And the things that I hear about just yesterday, I was talking to a femtech founder. She has an FDA cleared medical device that's already gone through clinical trials. It's proven it's patented. It's commercialized. She's literally already selling it. And investors are like, you just don't have enough traction. I'm like, traction i said forget the investors just go get acquired you know but it's like how much skepticism do they can they have if you have literally everything is secured like all the risk is gone and yet it's still not enough yeah see i'll tell you what you know what i said earlier i think what is visible is what is accessible we don't we Mm. can't understand see you know honestly speaking uh you know a lot of people i would say oversimplify this by saying that oh if there were more women vcs then maybe this problem can be solved you know if that were true then a lot of our systems would have been better by now but that's it's not as simple as that i feel that honestly speaking when imagine any typical investor whether you think of a male or you think of a female right i think how often are we surrounded by this problem we don't hear of this problem in our 
immediate spaces that much. And this does have an impact. You know, we ask the founders, how close are you to the problem? But how many VCs are really close to the problem? Not many. Hmm. I mean, even if they are, then, you know, like we don't articulate it in that way. Right. So I do feel that this problem is not verbalized and visibilized enough for there to be an intrinsic conviction. Right. Yeah. We're always like this, that, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I think um, uh, that is one of the reasons why there is a ton of investor skepticism where, you know, risky becomes way too risky. And then, you know, it all. But it's changing. I would say that it's changing. Uh, there's a lot of vehicles in India that are sort of, uh, you know, taking the cause up and things like that. And yeah. Oh, we can only hope for better times, I guess. <laughs> wow. That was that was really interesting. Um, I'd love to talk to you more some other time. We're out of time here, but talk to you more about like the intrinsic, like the unconscious ideas about investing in women's health. That is just really fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all that you do. Um, would love to come to India. Thanks for having me on a virtual panel the other day. Let's go. Let's do it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to my interview with Swarnima Bhattacharya, Chief Product Officer at GuyTree. Learn more about GuyTree at GuyTree.com. That's G-Y-T-R-E-E.com. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at FemHealthInsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 Femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.